In the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We are studying the book of First Samuel. And as you guys know, the first part of the book of First Samuel focuses on the life of Samuel the prophet. And we saw something important. We saw the difference between Samuel and the family of Samuel and Hannah the prophetess, and also the house of Eli the priest. And we saw how a child who is very young, God can speak to him. A child who's raised in an evil environment, still God can talk to him and make him a leader and develop him. We're going to continue in this chapter to see how God will start now almost have a different type of relationship with Samuel. Before today, the Bible describes Samuel as somebody who is serving the Lord, ministering to the Lord. And Samuel, in his mind, he never expected revelations. He never expected higher calling from God. He says, God put me here. I'm going to serve. I'm going to obey. He almost wanted to be unknown. He wanted to live a simple life. So last week, if you guys remember, we came to the point where God called Samuel three times. And every time Samuel thinks it's Eli who's calling him, he would actually go to Eli. Eli tell him, no, go lie down. I didn't call you. And this repeated three times. And we saw how this is a reflection of Samuel's obedience. Because anybody else as young as Samuel could have said, you know what? Forget about this. I must be hallucinating or this is not serious and so on. The, the third time, Eli told Samuel, go lie there. And when the, when the voice calls you, then this is the Lord calling you. So tell him, speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening. Speak, O Lord, for your servant hears. So now we're going to continue from, uh, from uh, verse 9. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and it shall be, if he, God, calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant's ears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And last time we said how Samuel did not have a lot of questions to Eli the priest. Told him, go lie down. God is going to talk to you. No problem at all. Very simple child went to sleep. And in a few minutes, God is going to talk to him. I think if it was me, I would have asked 10,000 questions. What do you mean God is going to talk to me? What does that mean? What is he going to say? Right? But he very simply obeyed. Look at verse 10. It says, now the Lord came and stood. The Lord came and stood and called as the other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, speak for your servant here. God at this point came and stood. Until this point, God used to call him from a distance. The relationship between Samuel and God has been through serving. Now God is going to talk to him firsthand. God is going to talk to him firsthand. And you will see here that Samuel was not afraid. This is, by the way, very unusual for a young child to see a revelation like this and not be afraid. It says God came and stood. So he must have seen some sort of an image of God. The great prophets in the Old Testament, they were afraid. 
Samuel, the child, was not afraid. And then God, when he calls him, he tells him what? Samuel, Samuel. You know, when God called Abraham, told him, Abraham, Abraham, Genesis 22. Jacob, Jacob, Genesis 46. Moses, Moses, Exodus 3. The call by name is so special and so powerful. So special and so powerful. When God, the Almighty himself, calls you by name, it's, it's unbelievable. I remember I, I had one of the youth I met, and he was from California. And he was obsessed with Pop Shenouda. So I asked him, why do you love Pop Shenouda so much? He's like, oh, because he came one time to my church when I was very young, and I was sitting on the floor, and he's sitting on his seat, and then we made eye contact, and we start smiling the whole time. And that's all what he remembers. And that's what made him fall in love with Pope Shmuel. Imagine when God, the Almighty, is calling you by name. Samuel, Samuel. There's another thing I want you guys to keep in mind. God is calling Samuel at a critical time in the life of the temple. He's calling him in a time where things are difficult. So God calls him twice to tell him, yes, I am calling you. Because most likely Samuel felt inadequate. He felt that he's not fit for this job. He felt that he's not worthy for that call. The one thing that's helping Samuel so far, his greatest virtue is obedience. The age of Samuel, we assume Samuel is a teenager, is the age of rebellions. The fact that Samuel at the age of rebellious is extremely obedient allows God to have intimacy with him. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. So God is preparing Samuel to become a prophet. So God is going to tell Samuel, look, there is a disaster that's going to happen. And you might say, God, this is so tough that he's a child. You're telling him, I'm going to, the first news, the first meeting between you and Samuel, they're going to tell him, I'm going to bring a disaster. You see, be careful because God wants to teach his children responsibility. Wants his children to be leaders. Wants his children to have courage. He's not here to baby you and me. He's here to make you develop and grow and become your best. And he can only do this when you are challenged. When you are challenged. If you're not challenged, you're not going to develop. One of, the great, one of the things that actually gives people a great sense of fulfillment in life is the sense of responsibility. 
is the sense of purpose, is the sense of helping others. So God's telling him, you are a child, yes, but I'm preparing you for something big. I'm going to bring a disaster. And then what? God told him, in that day, I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to an end. It looks like there's a lot of time that passed. Remember last chapter? There is a man of God that came and spoke to Eli and told him, God is going to bring all these curses on you. And Eli did nothing. So God coming back to Samuel and told him, Look, I will bring against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to the end. It's almost like God is saying, I didn't want to do it. I've waited, hoping that Eli would repent. Hoping that Eli would change. And this is, by the way, the way that God works with us. He gives you warning once, twice, three times, four times. Hoping that we change. Hoping that we respond. I was thinking about this the other day. Is this a new prophecy that God has given to Samuel? It is not a new prophecy. Already a man of God told Samuel last chapter that told Eli, sorry, last chapter, that God will bring a disaster on you. So this is how God is developing Samuel. His first message is difficult, yes. But his first message is not new. It's something that Eli have heard before. And his, his, his first message is going to convey it to Eli. Eli is much easier than later on we will see when he, he delivers messages to kings. You see how God is developing him as a leader? Yes, he's asking him to do something difficult, but it's not new to Eli, and it's something that it's somebody like Eli who is kind of, you know, nicer maybe, doesn't have a lot of anger issues that we're going to see with other kings. So to help Samuel to build his courage. To build Samuel to, to, a, to help Samuel to build his courage. For I have told him, God is telling Samuel, for I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. Look at this beautiful part. It's almost like God is venting to Samuel. He's telling him, I told him. He doesn't listen. His children are not, are messing up. Can you imagine the beauty of now having an intimacy with God? God is telling you, what's happening? What's hurting him? By the way, if you think about all the friends you have in your life, they are the ones that usually share, you know, important things with. And God came to Samuel and told him, I'm going to share something with you. I'm going to share something with you. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned 
for by a sacrifice or offering forever. That's a very tough verse. God is telling him, look, we came to a point where there is no more repentance for Eli. If he offers sacrifices, it won't work. And if he tries to uh, uh, do anything, I won't forgive him. You might ask yourself, why is God saying that? Well, who's going to be the next priest? Samuel. So God is sending this message to Samuel to warn him. See what happened to the person before you. I've sent him many warnings. He did not listen. The time of his repentance is over. The time of his repentance is over. You know, it's very sad when people get older. And then once they get older, they say, you know what, Abuna? Now I hear sermons and I have already, you know, heard it all. And it doesn't really affect me anymore. It's all talk. That means the heart is hardened. When you see, for example, somebody like Bishop Epiphanius, sometime when he gives his sermon, he cries. It's almost like he's crying in the sermon. He's a bishop. He reads a lot. When my heart stops responding to the word of God, it means I have stopped responding to the cause of repentance from God. If I have stopped responding to the cause of repentance from God, my heart will be hardened and the word of God would have no impact. That's why God told him, his chance to repent is over. Why? Especially for Eli and his children, because they disrespected the means of their own salvation. In the Old Testament, you will have to offer a sacrifice. Well, they disrespect the sacrifice. That's why we're very careful about not disrespecting the church, not disrespecting the sacrament, the word of God, because these are the means of our salvation. If I disrespect them, where else am I going to go? Somebody start belittling confession, for example. How are, how are you going to get your sins forgiven? That's why God said it is much difficult for them because they despised the gifts I have given them. So Samuel lay down until the morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision, uh, tell Eli the vision. This verse is beautiful. Imagine with me Samuel's life after this moment. Every day he would open the door of the temple, clean, vacuum, you know, get the books ready, get the shoria ready, does all the things he does. Today, I can imagine Samuel is singing in the morning. I spoke with God yesterday. He knows me by name. He called me. 
He told me his secrets. We have intimacy. His day is no longer will be the same. His life will no longer be the same. Every time he vacuums, it's not the same. It is the most enjoyable life he has. God has spoken and called him by name. Yes, he was afraid to convey the message to Eli. Because he's still in training. He's still in training. He's still not able to perform his duty as a prophet. What is the job of a prophet? To warn people, to tell them what you're doing is wrong. It's not a fun job. It's one of the worst jobs you can ever have, to be a prophet. I don't remember a prophet who had a happy message to tell the people. It's always, you have to repent, otherwise something will happen. It's the hardest job. So Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the truth. And a lot of times we are afraid to make people upset. And that becomes one of our greatest fear. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, he answered, here I am. Obviously, Eli is waiting to see what happens. All night long, I'm sure he's thinking, wow, Samuel is talking to God. What's happening inside? Once Samuel opened the door, Eli called him, Samuel, come here. You see, Samuel was scared to deliver the message that God is going to give him a push. It's a training camp for Samuel, by the way. It's a, if you want to learn how to be a good leader that develops people, you see how God dealt with Samuel in this chapter. Eli, and he said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you. And more also, if you hide anything from me, of all the things that he said to you. The expression that Eli is using, by the way, it's called an oath formula. Oath formula in the old days, there's an oath formula. Like you say, like, you know, if you do this, if you don't do this, I'm, you know, God will do that to you. They don't specif specify punishment. You know, it's more like bluffing, but it's just to see how serious the demand is. Okay? So Eli was very, very curious, and he wanted to know what happened. I want you, okay, guys, when you go home, think about the feelings of Eli overnight. What was he thinking? A child, a young child, who's serving in the church, God chose to speak to him and not to me, the high priest. What's happening in his mind? Did he get up at night and pray because he knows the presence of God is in the, is in the place at that moment? He offered worship? I don't know. Then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Obviously, the opportunity came to Samuel perfectly. God told him, told Eli, tell Eli, and God provided the condition for him. 
And he said, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. I want to stop at this verse for a little bit. The reaction of Eli is extremely frustrating. When Samuel came and told him, God will punish you and do all these things, what did he tell him? It's God's will. Let God's will be done. Really? This is God's will? May God give you multiple chances to repent. God sent you prophets. This is unhelpful submission. Unhelpful submission. You guys remember, we're gonna, if God gives us yani, life and we, we study the book of Kings, there is an evil king in the book of Kings. His name is Ahab. And God said, I'm going to end your life. Ahab repented and cried. And God said, you know what? I'm going to extend your life. And this, this king was evil. When we have problems in our life, I don't stand there and say, like, okay, this is God's will and just move on. No. It's a wake-up call to repent. It's a wake-up call to see what God is trying to tell you. It's not a call for you to complain. It's not a call for you to say, oh, whatever happens, happens. No. Eli should have known better. Should have repented. See how many chances God has given him? And he still has not repented. So don't say, oh, let the will of God be done. You know very well God does not want to punish you. You know very well that God wants to save you. You know very well that your children are sinning. And you're not being a good leader. You're not doing your job. Don't say, let the will of God be done. No. Be careful, because some of this attitude sometimes sneaks into our life. Look at this verse, beautiful verse 19. So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. How beautiful is that verse? The best description to anybody's life when the Bible says the Lord was with him. The Lord was with Nehemiah. The Lord was with Joseph, with Daniel, with Abraham, with Jacob. And his words were fulfilled. One of, um, one of the monks, a holy monk I was sitting with, he told me Abuna, the high-level saints like Abuna Fanus and Abuna Angelus, they become channels to the grace of God. And God uses them to convey his messages. But also God confirms their word. So if Abuna Fanus, for example, told you something, God will confirm it because he is a special channel for him. You guys understand? And when God does this, there's something special that happens. Now Samuel becomes a very respected figure. And when Samuel becomes a very respected figure, the honor of the temple will come back. Because people despise the temple, despise the sacrifice. You know, when we as servants and as clergy, we behave in a way contrary to the word of God, we dishonor God. 
and you can look at the results of our weddings and our celebrations and all these things that make people criticize us. Our own children whom we serve criticize us. We bring dishonor to God. People say, you know, the people that serve God are hypocrites, liars. I can't trust them. In the church, they live one life. Outside the church, they live another. They speak about love, but they gossip all the time. And they have cliques. And they don't welcome people. And it's hard to fit in. That's what they would say. When we become holy, we bring honor to God. We bring honor to God. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as the prophet of the Lord. So Dan to Beersheba, this is the Israel northern and southern border, and you will see it in 2 Samuel 17, 11. These are the borders. So everybody in Israel knew that Samuel was established as the prophet of God. Look at this. Nobody made an announcement that Samuel will be the prophet of God. Nobody gave Samuel, Samuel, please, now we're going to give you a special title. You're going to be called the prophet of God. The work of God through him made everybody know that he is the prophet of God. One of the worst things that could happen when we start seeking roles and titles and projects and events and all that stuff and we think by this way we are serving God God will assign you a role if you are his child will attract people to you if you are his child without announcement, without roles, without all these fancy things that people like. Look at the beautiful verse, verse 21. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Remember when we started this chapter, what does it say? It said the word of the Lord was rare in that time. Now what's happening? the Lord started coming back as if God was waiting for that one person to say yes I am here yes I am here because of Samuel a child Shiloh changes from a place of infrequent visions to a place where the Word of God is available is available and this is the beauty of the people who have intimacy with God in their relationship. You see, Samuel was promoted from just serving to now God assigned him a prophet and God is being intimate with him. He tells him the things that hurt in God himself. Chapter 4, we're going to switch gears a little bit. So remember, that I was telling you like the, the whole... This, the, the way that the first Samuel is written is so beautiful. He's comparing the life of Samuel with the life of Eli. It's almost like the more that Samuel grow, the more that disaster happens to Eli. 
It's kind of how the two chapters are, are putting next to each other. So now we're going to see the end of the family of Eli. We're going to see the end of the family of Eli. But before we see the end, I just want to tell you a couple of things. Israel, as a nation, had a very common enemy for many years. The people from Palestine, Palestine. They're fighting a lot, back and forth. And when you go to the book of Judges, which was before the book of 1 Samuel, there's a lot of war constantly between the Jews and Palestine. And a lot of times, when a nation wins, they think their God is the reason for their winning and their victory. Okay? So now we will see an example where what's going to happen is there will be a war between Palestine and Israel. Israel will lose the first battle. And instead of repenting, they will do something very, very strange that was not done before. And then because of, because of that, they will actually, almost their whole army will be dismantled. But let's take it step by step. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. This is just a, a little introduction, and then after this we'll go to light. But basically what it means, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Samuel started to teach the word of God. Finally, there's a, a holy man in the church, and when you have somebody who loves the church, he's going to talk about the Bible, talk about the word of God. Because that's what nourishes us at the end of the day. That's what feeds us. So Samuel started teaching. Be careful, Samuel is not yet a leader. The true judge of Israel at this point is Eli the priest. Samuel, just God is growing him, developing him. Okay? Now, see what happened. Now Israel went out to battle against Palestine and encamped beside Abinadir and the Palestinian encamped beside Afak. So basically, there are two different cities, and between them, it's actually next to a water source. There's a water source between them. So the Palestine, which we call them the sea water, and by the way, one of the earliest reference to the Palestinian outside the scripture is in the 12th century before Christ, and, and at the time of Ramses III. So this is this, this story, the, 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 the people of Israel, there's a lot of reference to them. Palestine had five big cities. And these five big cities are relevant. We're going to see why. Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, Akron, and Goth. These are the five cities of, of Palestine. You might find them not important, but we'll see why they are important. Um, Abinidir and Afak, they are about 10 and 8 miles away from Tel Aviv today. So they're very close to the center of of the world. So basically, you have two armies standing in front of each other. Then the Palestinian put themselves in the battle, arraying against Israel. So the Palestinian came to fight. And when they joined the battle, Israel was defeated by Palestinian, by Palestinians who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. Keep something in mind. In the history of Israel so far, every time they are defeated, there is usually a reason for the defeat, not because they are weak military, but because they're far away from God. So if they have read the scripture and know their Bible, they would know that we are defeated, I have to go back and repent. That's what happened in the time of Joshua. 
When they were defeated, he came back and told God, God, what happened? He told him, in your midst, there's a thief. Now, they were defeated. They did not seek God. They did not ask why, what did we do wrong? What did they do? And when the people had come into the camp, look, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Palestinian? Let us bring the Ark of Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the, land of, from the hands of our enemies. This verse is very interesting. They lost. So what did they decide to do? He says the elders of Israel. Who are the elders of Israel? If you guys remember from every tribe, they pick few people to lead the tribe. In the book of Numbers, there were about 70 elders of Israel. So the elders of Israel, it is a political power. Their people have political power. And by the way, these are the same elders of Israel that went back in the time of Saul and they tried to demand certain from, things from him and they demand certain things from Samuel. So the elders of Israel, you can think of them as almost the Congress today. They are the ones who are representing the different tribes. Now the elder of Israel said something interesting. They said, you know what? Why did God defeat us? So they recognize that their defeat is not because they are military inferior to Palestinian. They recognized it was God's hand. If it was God's hand, why didn't you ask God why were you defeated? You know, by the way, we all do this. We all complain, but never seek God himself. Why did God allow this relationship? Why did God allow me to meet this person? Why did God allow me to have this job? Why did God allow me uh, not to have, uh, for example, the, the certain friendship that I'm looking for? Go sit and talk to God. Ask Him. Spend time with Him. Seek Him. Now, what the elders did was something very interesting. They said, you know what? Let us bring the Art of the Covenant to come be among us to fight. Now, this is not a very usual, this is not a very usual behavior. But what are they doing? They are copying other nations behind them. Other nations, when they used to go to war, they used to bring their idols into the war. So they said, let's copy other people. Let's copy other people. They did not, instead of going and reflecting, they copy everybody else in the culture. The also, there's a big problem here too. The fact that they don't understand God correctly. They think the fact that the ark is present, it means God is okay with them. I can't be sinning and do anything I want and say, oh, I come take communion every week. What does that mean? Communion means I am uniting with God and people. That's why in, in the liturgy we say, make us, so we can all become one body, one soul, one spirit. All become 
one body, one soul, one spirit. How can I go unite in communion if I am in contention with one of my friends? I can't. So we have people who might do all the wrong things and say, oh, I take communion. It means nothing. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. So that's what they did. They are missing the point. He said, let us bring the ark. What is the ark? What is the ark? Is this ark, what is this, Power Rangers? Is going to come out and, and like shoot fires at people? What does that mean? Bring the ark. No spiritual awareness of God. And look, what's happening so far? These elders of Israel, they know that Samuel is the honorable prophet of God. They did not go ask him, what should we do? And Samuel remained silent because God has not ordered him to speak. Look, verse 4. So the people went, this is the elder, sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Such a sad situation. First of all, what, what, why does it say the ark of covenant of hosts that dwells between the cherubim? If you guys remember the ark of covenant, it's like a box laid with gold from inside and outside. And what's inside? The rod of Aaron, the manna, and the table of covenant. At the top of it, there were two statues of the cherubim. They're touching each other. And when God used to speak, he used to speak in between the two cherubim. That's why he says, the ark of covenant, the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. Imagine with me what's happening. In order for you to take the ark outside, you should get the high priest's permission. This is not a political decision. This is a priestly decision. But because the priests were corrupt, they had no credibility or even ability to say no to the leaders of Israel. When we live a corrupt life, when we live a life where we constantly compromise on our values, we will find ourselves have no courage to stand up for what's right. If we don't live according to our principles, we will not have courage to stand up for what's right. Every time I lie, every time I cheat, every time I disrespect the church, I'm compromising on my principle. Next time I tell a kid, hey, please respect the church, you'll be like, you're using your phone in the church. Hey, please respect the church, you're laughing in the church. The priest had no, at this moment, they had no credibility to stand up for what's right. Also, there's another danger because the priest never taught the people the word of God. Nobody of the congregation had the understanding and awareness to say this is not right. Now everything is mixed together. Nothing is clear. And when the Ark of the Covenant 
of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly, then the earth shook. This is a beautiful, interesting scene. So when the people of Israel, the army saw the ark coming, what they all did, shouted. They're very excited. I'll tell you guys something. A lot of times, people come to events for the wrong reasons. People come to events, even spiritual events, for the wrong reasons. And it seemed like there's a lot of excitement, but I'm missing the point. I'm missing the goal. I'm missing the purpose. And this is one of the main reasons, one of the main reasons that God left Israel to be defeated. You might tell me, there's a lot of people that are gonna die, 4,000, and then another very high number later we're gonna explain it. This is a lot of people. He says, they, they, they don't understand. Their spiritual events became almost like concerts outside. There is no real understanding. How do you know? Test it. Are you willing to spend time between you and God alone? Are you willing to spend time in the liturgy with God? There are certain prayers where it requires a lot of personal talk with God. Is this available or only I get excited when I have a group of people and have a nice video online and that's it. What's important? Now the Palestinians heard the noise and of the shout. They said, what does the sound, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrew means? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. They shouted so, so loud that the Palestinians started to fear. The ark is here. The, the, the people, the pagans. The Palestinian understanding of the ark, you find it a bit better than the Jews. So the Palestinians were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp and they said woe to us for such a thing has never happened before. The Palestinians themselves know that this never happened before. And the priests, the elders, the people of Israel, none of them said that this never happened before. What an embarrassing situation when the people of God get educated from the people of the world about their own God. About their own God. They're crying. They said, this is God is coming to fight us. They understood the ark means the presence of God. And they know that the God of Israel is a strong God. He's the God who got them out of Egypt. He's the God that who saved them. You'll see this, woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Doesn't it amaze you 
it seems that the Palestinian knows more about the Bible than the, than the Jewish people in this story. Sometime you meet somebody who is not, who doesn't go to church, but he can say a lot of spiritual ideas because he's truly inside his heart he's seeking God. Maybe he hasn't had the same opportunities as we have. And they can speak the truth. And he, the truth. And here we see the fact that God here did all the work in Israel so all the nations around them can know who is the true God. And the people of Palestine knew who is the true God. We'll take one more verse and then we'll continue next time. So they said, be strong and conduct yourself like men, you Palestinians, that you don't become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourself like men and fight. Instead of, remember there's a lot of stories in Joshua and in the time of Moses, when God interferes in war, he puts fear inside the enemies. You see what happened today? When the ark came, it put courage inside the enemies of Israel because it was not according to God's permission. And I want us to take the wisdom of the people of Palestine. They said what? Conduct yourself and be men. Otherwise you become slaves to the Hebrew. Here is telling us carry your, your responsibility. You have no other choice. Don't complain too much. Otherwise, you will carry the, the consequences of not carrying the responsibility. You're a soldier. Fight. You're a child of God and the devil is fighting you. You must have your daily weapons. Your prayer, your Bible reading, your life with God. If you spend just a few minutes in the morning with God, it gives you strength for the rest of the day. Take responsibility and fight. Don't just give in. Every time you wake up in the morning, I'm sorry, I have to wake up exactly on the dot to catch my bus. 10 minutes, 15 minutes. You can't? I can't. Wow, what a weak soldier. How about the bus? I have to sleep in the school bus. What about school? After I come from school, I'm tired. I want to take a nap. And then what? I have to play games. I'm on my phone. 20 minutes for God. The Palestinian said, be strong. Be strong. We all are called to carry a responsibility in our life. And people who live a fulfilled life are those who carry the responsibility and know where they are and what they need to do. May God give us the spirit that we can fight and glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.